It's Thursday, June 10th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. It's something we always knew was happening. Ultra-rich Americans paying little to no taxes, even as their wealth increases. ProPublica has obtained IRS data on the top 25 richest Americans and how they maneuver the tax system by claiming very little taxable income, borrowing money, or reporting investment losses, all to offset paying taxes. Between 2014 and 2018, these top 25 saw their worth rise a collective $401 billion, but paid a true tax rate of just 3.4%. Jeff Ernsthausen, senior data reporter at ProPublica, joins us for how billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, and others sometimes get away with paying nothing in taxes. Next, plant-based meats were already having a moment before the pandemic, showing up in your grocery stores, fast food chains, and restaurants. But as meat and pork prices were going up, these alternative meats were surging in options and dropping in price. In 2020, we saw 112 new plant-based meat, egg, and dairy brands hit store shelves. And people aren't just trying them once, we're seeing repeat customers. Laura Riley, business, a food reporter at The Washington Post, joins us for how plant-based proteins are taking a bite out of big meat. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Recent study shows that 55 of the nation's biggest corporations paid zero federal tax last year. Those 55 corporations made in excess of $40 billion in profit. Joining us now is Jeff Ernsthausen, senior data reporter at ProPublica. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about taxes. There at ProPublica, you guys were able to obtain a large amount of IRS information. It shows how billionaires like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Warren Buffett, a lot of others really pay very little in income taxes compared to their massive wealth. Sometimes they paid nothing. There's a a number of cases, a number of times where these individuals paid nothing in federal income taxes. And, uh, you know, we have this kind of notion in America that everybody pays their fair share in taxes. And all this data that you guys obtained really kind of throws that out the window. There's a number of mechanisms and loopholes that these people can use to avoid paying a lot of those taxes. So, Jeff, walk us through some of this and some of the information that you guys were able to obtain. Yeah. So our first story is about a very basic concept in some ways, um, which is that uh, you and I, when we work to live, we earn wages or salary. Taxes are taken automatically out of our paychecks every month. The ultra wealthy are not in the tax system in the same way. So the bulk of their wealth as it grows, it's not taxed until they choose to do something like, say, sell stock. So they can accrue vast wealth, which is really like the equivalent of income for us um, and not pay taxes on it. And so you mentioned in some years, billionaires have managed to pay nothing in federal income tax. Jeff Bezos paid no income taxes twice in 2007 and 2011. Elon Musk paid nothing in 2018. And in recent years, billionaire investors George Soros and Carl Icahn uh, and Michael Bloomberg uh, have all paid nothing in income taxes in some years. And so the kind of main finding uh, that we were able to produce um, is that if you kind of take the entire group of the top 25 richest people in America and look at their wealth growth over a five-year period and look at how much they paid in taxes, uh, you get that they grew their wealth by $400 billion over the five years from 2014 to 2018 and paid only a fraction of it, 3.4% in federal taxes during that time. And for comparison, you know, the average 
So a typical American who, who takes home a wage pays about 14% on their income taxes in those years. Yeah, the disparity in all that is huge. And, uh, you know, obviously the big question comes, how do they get to do that? One of the couple of things that I see is a common theme, obviously, and you mentioned it, right? The income, it, you have to report income to be able to be taxed on it. So a lot of times what these do is, um, you know, you report losses on investments or you borrow a lot of money. You don't have to pay income taxes on that stuff because it's not technically income. That's right. I mean, you know, a good example in terms of you know, not taking income would be someone like Warren Buffett. You know, Berkshire Hathaway sort of famously doesn't pay dividends. And so as the stock price grows, uh, dividends aren't paid out. So Warren Buffett's not registering you know, income uh, for tax purposes on it. Um, and so he has a a very low rate when you consider how much he's paid in taxes um, compared to how much his wealth's grown uh, in recent years, um, which is you know tens of billions of dollars. Going back to the other notion of uh, you know borrowing large sums of money, we see a lot of these big companies, uh, CEOs, and everything. A lot of times they're saying, "Hey, well, I'm only going to take a uh, one dollar in my salary for this year." And to a lot of people, you know, hearing that, saying, "Oh, well, they're you know they're not uh, cashing in all sorts of amounts of money," but you know, it just doesn't really work out that way. They're not taking that income, so they're not paying the taxes on that stuff, but they keep growing their wealth in other ways. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, you know, like with other assets, you can borrow against uh, wealth, right? So in some sense, you know, folks who are uh, in the highest wealth stratum, they can borrow against things like shares of stock, um, which several of the folks in the top 25 did uh, in, in the past uh, decade or two. So, um, and you sometimes see that come out, actually, in disclosures from the SEC. And so from that, we know that uh, Elon Musk, for example, borrowed tens of billions of dollars um, or pledged uh, tens of billion dollars of, of Tesla stock uh, in order to borrow money. So even though it may not look like income, there's still a way to access that value. In your findings and all of this, you, you guys were able to access a lot of IRS information, kind of raw information, and you were comparing that to other data that we have, uh, data from Forbes about how a lot of these people grew their wealth, and you came up with a new number, something that you guys were calling a true tax rate. Basically, they're increasing their wealth so much, but they only paid this amount in taxes, and when you look at that number... I mean, that really kind of paints a picture of how much they're actually paying compared to all the money that they're making. Walk us through some of that. So we did we did two stories uh, came out today. One um, was looking at the sort of traditional you know rates that the IRS might publish, you know, uh, income or taxes divided by income, basically, to get a to your tax rate. Interestingly, the ultra wealthy pay a relatively low rate uh, as far as that's concerned as well, because most of their uh, income is in the form uh, is in forms of income that are taxed at a lower rate, like capital gains. But it's not capturing the whole picture because you really have to take a look at how much they're able to, you know, really bring in and add to their, you know, buying power, to their, you know, influence in society, things like that, that are influenced by your wealth. I and mean, when you take that picture, when you look at the sort of unrealized gains as well as, as sort of traditional income, you see that it's a really small fraction for, for them as a group in terms of what they pay in federal income taxes. And for some individuals, it's incredibly small. Walk us through some of those names, because uh, you mentioned Jeff Bezos, Warren Buffett, Elon Musk. Give us a few numbers, if you can, with how much they're really paying when you work it out this way. Yeah. So you go back to 2006 and you look at how much uh, Jeff Bezos, for instance, um, how much his wealth has gone up. It, it went up something on the order of uh, you know, $130 billion. 
Um, and in that time, he paid, uh, you know, one, I think, $1.4 billion in taxes. And it sounds like a lot, but when you sort of divide that by $130 billion, it's only about 1% um, that he's paying on his, on his wealth growth. Um, so it can be a strikingly low figure. It's uh, actually even lower if you look at, at Warren Buffett, um, who has a very, uh, who takes very low income. I wanted to work in uh, some of the discussion around taxes when it comes to politics and all that, because we'd been hearing that from the Biden administration wanting to raise taxes on, on the wealthy, uh, on wealthier Americans, also on corporations that are making uh, billions of dollars. Um, you know, we've been hearing a lot about that. How does that work into this conversation? Well, for you know, decades, the conversation about uh, taxes has been kind of dominated by marginal tax rates, right? Um, but those rates are only going to capture uh, what happens when people do take income. Um, and so, uh, you know, some some folks who are at the top of the wealth distribution, these these really uh, wealthy billionaires, um, you know, they'll be affected to some degree by that. But it's not going to change much of the picture when we talk about how much they're paying in taxes versus their wealth growth. Some economists do think uh, that uh, uh, many economists think that uh, the corporate taxes are ultimately paid by by individual people. And if you distribute that, most of that falls onto the uh, shareholders. So insofar as there's moves on the corporate tax rate, um, that would uh, be more likely to be sort of raising revenue, at least indirectly off of this group. You made mention in the article as well about taxes being paid after somebody passes away and how even then a lot of uh, people's estates are able to skirt paying a lot of the taxes and, and passing on that wealth to their heirs and all of that stuff. I mean, obviously, there's all sorts of loopholes all over the place, but that just kind of figures into all of this. Even in death, people escape paying a lot of these taxes. Yeah, there's an entire industry around uh, wealth management, and a lot of that is geared towards figuring out how to sort of minimize uh, tax burden, right? And so there are complicated the trust that you can set up if you are interested in trying to move a portion of your estate without having it end up being you know, taxed at the, the estate tax level when you when you pass on. Um, and a lot of these um, you know sorts of uh, trusts are only accessible to people on, who are in you know in the top top stratum, which is also who's affected by the estate tax, of course. Jeff Ernsthausen, senior data reporter at ProPublica. Thank you very much for joining us. No, thank you for having me. Those companies have scaled up, have increased their production facilities, um, are getting better deals on the basic ingredients, just as grocery prices in every other category has uh, skyrocketed. Joining us now is Laura Riley, business of food reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Laura. Oh, thanks for having me. I wanted to talk about alt-meat, alternative meat proteins right now. They were having a moment before the pandemic, and throughout it, nobody knew exactly what was going to happen, how things were going to get affected. We saw a lot of supply chain issues with uh, normal meat production, but uh, these alt-proteins really kind of stood out throughout the pandemic. And one of the key things that helped them was the price. The price was coming down just at the right moment for them as other traditional meat, beef and pork, their prices were going up. So, Laura, tell us a little bit about what we're seeing with these plant-based meats right now. 
Well, so before the pandemic, you know, you saw IPOs like the, the incredible Beyond Meat. I mean, there really was incredible investment in the space and celebrity investors, and it was really kind of blowing up. It was, to me, 2019 was all about kind of alt protein, whether that was milk substitutes or, you know, vegan eggs, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, the, the, the playing field really expanded in 2019. The pandemic hit and no one knew what was going to happen. You know, what, what was it going to mean for this fairly fledgling category? You know, was it a fad um, or did it have legs? And I think that that a lot of things have conspired to solidify that it really is a, a trend or a movement rather than just, you know, something kind of fleeting. One thing that happened was that meat prices, uh, especially for beef and for pork, have dramatically increased. You know, they really grocery prices overall have really exploded. But those categories have exceeded or kind of outstripped all the other grocery categories. And so now at the grocery store, people are comparing, uh, you know, impossible meat to ground beef and saying, huh, yes, the, the impossible is still a little bit more expensive, but not way more expensive. So before the pandemic, it was clear that, you know, people who wanted to enjoy these new products, these kind of, you know, animal free products were paying a premium for them. And so those companies have scaled up, have increased their production facilities, um, are getting better deals on the basic ingredients, just as grocery prices in every other category has uh, skyrocketed. Let's do a little bit of price comparison, because before this, you mentioned in the article, a pound of ground Impossible Burger was like double that of even the fanciest ground beef. It was pretty expensive. And, you know, for those people coming into it, wanting to try it, I mean, that could be cost prohibitive for them. But right now it's almost equal in certain cases. Beyond has really come down quite a bit. So it's kind of maybe a little under six bucks in a lot of stores. And that's comparable to kind of premium ground beef. Just eggs, their prices have come down so that they're kind of, you know, they're still expensive. They're about 50 cents an egg. So that's more expensive than the commodity eggs in the grocery store. But it's about on par with the kind of premium pasture-raised eggs that you'll find at the farmer's market. So they're starting to reach that price parity point, which a lot of the, the industry analysts said we were still way far away from. So, you know, a year ago when I was talking to analysts, they'd say, oh, gosh, you know, 2024 at the very earliest, probably later than that, that you'd start seeing kind of price equivalents. And we're seeing this much sooner than anticipated. And in a lot of cases, you know, for like Pat Brown at Impossible or for some of these companies, their goal is to, to undercut traditional animal ag prices. Um, that is their objective. And they, they, they want to eat, eat the lunch of, yeah. uh, you know, traditional animal ag. And you made mention the article, too, something really important that they were getting repeat customers with this because obviously there's people that maybe want to try something once or twice, but if they're coming back, then, you know, that just means more for them. Absolutely. No, I think that that's a key uh, factor for all of this. You know, I think there were people who were curious and maybe one-timers. And, and the interesting thing is this is mostly, these products are not really for vegans or vegetarians. These are especially the, the meat ones. This new round of, of alt meat, they're really more for the kind of omnivore or the flexitarian who's trying to go a little lighter on meat, either for health reasons or for the environment, you know, kind of carbon sequestration reasons. Um so I think that we're seeing a, a larger number of people who are willing to try and then a larger number of people who are willing to make it kind of a regular part of their diet. 
while these alternative proteins are kind of growing right now, it's really just a fraction of what the traditional beef, poultry, and pork game really is. And a lot of these big companies are jumping into that game. They're expanding their product lines to expand into these alternative proteins as well. I think that's one of the most surprising things is that you're seeing, you know, Cargill and and JBS and Tyson and Hormel and all these huge meat companies joining, you know, and it it does feel like and they're all realigning themselves. You know, they used to call themselves meat companies and now they're protein companies. So they're expanding what they do because no one really knows how big this new market is going to become, you know, And, and I think that they're kind of. If you can't beat them, join them. You know, that mentality works in this case. If you offer traditional chicken nuggets and then also, you know, vegan nuggets, well, then you kind of got all your bases covered. So and those big companies, especially when you start getting into like Archer, Daniels, Midland or companies that that really produce the building blocks, you know, kind of the, the ingredients for some of these other companies, you know, you're driving down price by these huge economies of scale. Um, so the more of these traditional animal ag companies that get into this game, the the more price pressure there's going to be. On the traditional side of things, you know, you made mention, obviously, prices are going up there. Are we going to continue seeing that? You know, the country's opening back up, getting more back to normal. Um, you know, during the pandemic, we saw huge things happening, labor shortages, supply chain issues, all that stuff. Is that trend continuing or is that easing up yet? Well, we haven't seen it. So in terms of kind of uh, data that came out the past couple of weeks, prices have been have continued to be very high and have been high for beef and pork. So I don't think there's any indication that those things are coming down. We still have all kinds of supply chain problems. And and, you know, it's uh, the whole world is so interconnected now that even things like this, the computer chip shortage, um, that has all kinds of trickle down ramifications for other supply chain, uh, you know, issues. So, you know, I think that we're very likely to see high, continued high prices, especially because we have tons of people buying groceries, as we've seen this, you know, through the whole pandemic. And now every restaurant in the country has had to restock its walk-in. So we're having a lot of price drivers right now are, are all those restaurants getting back in the game and trying to get back up to 100% capacity. Restaurants, what are we seeing with them? We're seeing a lot of things from Yelp, Open Table about people just making reservations constantly. That part of it is is coming back. It's good for those restaurants that had been suffering so long throughout the pandemic. Well, they are roaring back. I talked to a chef yesterday in Las Vegas who said they had 300,000 people in Las Vegas last weekend and that every restaurant was at capacity. The problem with that is that staffing is still a massive shortfall for, for so many restaurants. So you're getting this real disconnect between the fervor and enthusiasm for all of us who are sick of our own cooking, you know, from a year of, of living at home, right. we all want to get back. I was at myself. I went out to dinner last night. It felt great. You know, that's what we want to be doing right now. But most restaurants, almost all the restaurants I know are still looking for staff so that they can staff up. So you're seeing these weird situations where a restaurant will be two thirds full with a line out the door and they're telling people they're turning people away. And people are saying, well, wait, I see an empty table. Said, well, if you don't have the servers to service those tables and you don't have the kitchen staff to make the food, it doesn't matter how many physical tables are in the restaurant. Laura Riley, business, a food reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media 
at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.